I know we, we like to buy products that are fresh and that have not been, uh, that have not been messed with and contaminated so they have a protective seal. But around our lives, God has a type of protection. It's called protective zeal. Everyone say zeal. And we need this protective zeal today in the world that we live in. I want to share with you one of the most amazing stories in the Bible that you probably never heard unless you've read through the book of Numbers. It's one of my favorite stories, but it's a, it's a, if you listen to the story from the viewpoint of today's culture, you will have a problem with it. So, uh, but how many of you know that God is way beyond man's limited cultural views? And all of his ways are perfe perfect. All of his ways are perfect. This is, this is a story of Israel as they are spending 40 years in the wilderness and they have spent 40 years fighting and battling against the Amorites and the various people that have been afraid of them since they came out of Egypt. And um, they're near the end of that 40-year wandering and they're about to come close to the, the place where they're about to um, enter in. And one of the most dangerous, one of the most horrible things happens to Israel. I want to talk about it this morning. And it's in Numbers chapter 25. I usually don't read a whole ton of scripture, but I want to, I want to read actually the whole like, like 13 verses of this to give you the, the backstory, and then we'll get into it and comment on it. So, Numbers 25, verse 1. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with the local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. And the Lord issued the following command to Moses, saying, Seize all the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight so his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. End of quote. That was what God spoke to Moses. I'm going to continue the narrative, but I want to just simply say um, most theologians and, and historians, Bible historians, believe that it's questionable as to whether Moses actually was able to carry out, was able to get the, the leaders to carry out that assignment to kill every ringleader that was in, involved and to hang them up, to hang them up against the sun. Um, but at any rate, that was God's call to them. And they did carry it out to a point. Let's continue. So Moses ordered Israel's judges, each of you must put to death the men under your authority who have joined in worshiping Baal of Peor. Just then, just then, one of the Israelite men, a man named Zimri, a prince, the son of a prominent man descended from Aaron, a man named Zimri. Uh, just then, 
one of the Israelite men brought a Midianite woman. The woman he brought, let me uh, and make a parenthetic insertion. Her name was Cosby. She was a Midianite princess, the daughter of a chief, a Midianite chief. And so the uh, Israeli man, Zimri, as, as they were in the process, as Israel's in the process of, of trying to repent and deal with this, this falling away, he brings a Midianite woman into his tent right before the eyes of Moses and all the people as everyone was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle. So get the picture that they're having a repentance service and there's thousands of people in Moses and they're weeping and crying out to God because of all the, the judgment and the mayhem and everything that's happened at the tent. And here comes this dude and he, he's, he's got this Midianite, basically not just a princess, but a plant, a, a honey pot, a prostitute, if you will, um, brings her and he kind of dips through the congregation and scoots off into the, his tent with her, right? So you get, get what's going on. Now, when Phinehas, Phinehas is the, is the hero of this story. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the, the grandson of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he jumped up and left the assembly. He took a spear and he rushed after the man into his tent and Phinehas thrust the spear all the way through the man's body and into the woman's stomach. So the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But not before 24,000 people had died. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the grandson of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites by being as zealous among them as I was. So I stopped destroying all Israel as I had intended to do in my zealous anger. Now tell him, tell Phinehas, that I am making my special covenant of peace with him. In this covenant, I give him and his descendants a permanent right to the priesthood, for in his zeal for me, his God, he purified the people of Israel, making them right with me. Wow, that's a story that wouldn't go over too big on Facebook. Um, you'd probably get some, some rough responses if you shared that and, and indicated that you thought that as God did and as the Bible does, that that was a great example of the zeal of God because God himself endorses he endorses Phinehas' zeal, and he says, he was as zealous for the things of God as I am. His zeal was as great as mine was, and it stopped the plague from consuming the people. Okay, so um, you probably or you should know that I am not going to be preaching a message that endorses taking a spear and going out and skewering every example of sin and compromise and so forth. So where, what is this message about? I think it's amazing that uh, Phinehas really 
is one of the few people in the Old Testament that um, along with um, Esther, perhaps, was one. Another one who actually saved Israel from extinction. Israel would have been extinct. They would have been annihilated. From what God said, it it's, um, uh, seems as though the plague wouldn't have stopped until it consumed all Israel if someone didn't do something. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is protective zeal. They were weeping, they were going, they were carrying on everything, but apparently that was not stopping the plague. And this is a critical message. I know you'll get it. Praise the Lord. Um, but I want to share about the zeal of God and the zeal of the Lord. First of all, I know that we all pretty much think we know what zeal is. Zeal is when everyone's singing, but somebody sings louder, you know. Or, uh, zeal is when the praise team's praising and Aubrey starts clapping and lifting up her hands and jumping and leaping for joy. And those, we don't want to take anything away from that. But um, that's not exactly the zeal that saved Israel on that day. The zeal of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord shows up when God's people have become indifferent towards corruption. The zeal of the Lord shows up when God's people are stalled out in compromise and fear when confronted with a challenge. That's when zeal shows up. When God's people are supposed to move forward, are supposed to act, are supposed to do something, and they're not doing it, and they are bound up in some kind of compromise, some kind of fear. And so the zeal of the Lord shows up at those times. In both the Hebrew language of the Old Testament and the Greek language of the New Testament, the word zeal has one, a one-word definition, and it's the same in both, both Old and New Testament. That word is heat. Heat. Phenehas uh, got hot. Phenehas got lit up. Fire was in Phenehas. The fire of God. So zeal is the fire that's required when hearts are too cool to do what is needed to be done. So just think of that. Zeal is the fire that hearts need when they're too cool to do what God says needs to be done. I want to call your attention to one of my favorite uses of the word zeal. It's in Isaiah 9 and 7. You're familiar with it. After it says, For unto us a son is born, child is given, government shall be upon his shoulders, you shall call his name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Um, um, at any rate, all those wonderful things, praise the Lord. And the Bible says, it goes on to say, and of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Notice that when it comes time to establishing the order of God, we're talking about the serious business of, of the government, of the kingdom of God. When it comes time to establishing, and you need to clear the ground and lay a foundation, and you need to make sure that there is an appreciation and an honor towards the kingdom of God. When it comes time to establish it, and God reaches into his bag of qualities and characteristics, he 
pulls out zeal to do that. Because zeal is what's needed when we face opposition, when the spirit of rebellion is there, when people are broken and paralyzed because of their compromise, and because they've been compromised in sin, they can't act and their hearts are cool and cold down. Zeal is the fire it takes to establish the kingdom of God. And that's why John the Baptist said, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Woo, hallelujah, and with fire. Heat the zeal of God. Praise the Lord. Phinehas, his act of zeal, is the greatest example of zeal in the Old Testament. I think it rivals the zeal of Abraham when Abraham took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and was about to sacrifice him. And the reason I think it rivals Abraham's act, and Abraham's act was tremendous, and God said, now I know that you believe God, and, and uh, he, he uh, provided the ram, which was a symbol of Jesus eventually being provided. But the reason I think Phinehas, the zeal of Phinehas was even greater, is because Abraham was following an order from God. God told him every step of the way what to do. God ordered him up on that mountain. What Phinehas did was 100% holy, spontaneous, unsolicited response to evil. There was no law he was following. There was no orders he had been given. It came right out of his heart. And, and that's why I think it's the greatest demonstration or act of true zeal. Um, he wasn't following an official position or a responsibility he had as some kind of leader. Um, he wasn't performing a duty. He wasn't uh, compelled to fulfill some commandment. It just, where's the spear? Runs across the street, runs into the tent, and just like a couple of olives, man. And that was, that was it. It was the zeal, the zeal of God. And... Um, it's amazing to me that this message doesn't get preached more. But you can kind of see why it doesn't. Because, you know, the fear of, you know, people getting the wrong idea. <laughs> I don't want to even comment, but you can just see where that could end up going. But I think, there's another, I think there's another reason why you don't see messages like this very much today. Um, and it's because we live in a world that the, the pressure of our culture today is chill out. There's nothing, you know, don't get worked up. Back down. Take it easy. Be passive. Don't be rude. Don't be rude and stand up and call darkness or sin what it is. Don't be rude. You might offend, especially in church. People don't come to church to be made uncomfortable. Don't be rude. Take it easy, man. You understand what I'm saying to you, right? That, there's a reason why we don't talk about this kind of zeal. And right now in our colleges and universities and, and in our places of influence, wherever there is a history of men and women who were zealous, we're tearing those statues down. We're destroying those images. We are, we are discarding them as being evil. It's viewed 
as being inappropriate, being wrong, being evil. If you are zealous and take some kind of zeal, spontaneous, holy reaction to evil. Um, but here's what I want you to do this morning. Here's, here's where we have to put this in right perspective for us today. When you hear this account of zeal against compromise, I don't want you to think of our church. Thank God. When you, when you hear this testimonial about zeal against compromise, I don't want you to think of any other churches. I don't want you to think of our culture or our society. I don't want you to think of the zeal against compromise, how you might apply it to other people. What I want you to do is I want you to, to pluck up this story and out of its geopolitical context, and I want you to drop it into the center of your own heart and your life. And I want you to think this morning as we look through this story, I want you to, to see all these characters as living in your heart. This story is about how you treat God in the interior of your own life. That's what it's about. That's the geopolitical context where this story is meant to be applied. So here's the situation. Let's talk first about, about this situation. Let's broaden the view. I read you out of Numbers 25, the, the illustration of what, what happened. But the fact is that uh, Israel had been traveling for nearly 40 years through the wilderness, fighting many battles and getting very good at it. They were on a war footing. They didn't rest. They were, it was like Israel was, was Gideon's 300. And um, they were living a an alert life. They were living a, a life of, of um, uh, on high alert. I, I can't think of a better way to put it. And except when this story begins, they have come to a resting place, a stop, and they drop their bags, drop their weapons, and they take a break. I want to come back to that idea for just a moment. The chapter, the two chapters before this, chapter 23, chapter 24, right before this, does anybody know just right off what happens in those chapters, the chapters right before? Just days before this happens is that phenomenal story most all of you are familiar with about Balaam, the false prophet, who was hired by the Moabite king, Balak. You see, Israel had come and camped right along the Jordan River, and on the other side were, was Moab, and just south of them were the Midianites, and they were scared. They were worried because nobody could stand against Israel. And so they were worried, we're next. And so Balak, the Moabite king, he hires the prophet from Midian, the, his neighbor to the south, and he says, I will, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, figuratively speaking. If you will curse Israel, do you remember the story? If you'll curse Israel. Now we have some great mountains that surround the north, south, east, and west where Israel is camped in the valley. And I want you to go up on that mountain and I want you to take your juju medicine and everything you've got and go up there and do your thing, man. Curse them. Curse them. Just put the curse on them. 
and, and, uh, and then I'll pay you. So you know how the Balaam goes up there and he gets ready to pull out his curses and everything and the Spirit of God comes on him. And he looks down in the valley and he sees Israel, but he sees a lion among them. He said, I can, and all of a sudden the Holy Ghost comes on this false prophet. And instead of cursing them, he blesses them. He says, these are the mighty people of God that God has brought up with his mighty hand. And uh, they are like a young lion and no one can take the prey from their mouth. And he's going on and on. And Balak is standing over to the side listening going, hey, I didn't pay for this. I paid you to curse them. What are you doing? You're blessing them. When he's all done, Balak turns to Balaam and he said, I'm sorry. He said, I can only speak what God puts in my mouth. He said, there is no enchantment against Israel. God has blessed them, and they cannot be cursed. Oh, woo, Jesus, hallelujah. There's no enchantment against the blood of Jesus in our life. God is blessed. If we abide under that blessing, the best cursor in the world at that time tried to curse me, so I can't curse him. God's blessed him. God's blessed him. Sorry. You just keep your money. I mean, he said, all right, I'll double the payment. He said, no, no, it's, it's not about that. I can't do it. He said, I'll tell you, let's try another mountain. Let, just come over here and let's, let's go down to the south side. Get up on one of them southern mountains. We'll look at it from the... So he says, look, it's not going to work, but all right, I'll do it. Because he's thinking, I would like to get paid, so I don't know if there's a chance it'll work. Well, they go, he goes around. He cannot curse them. Instead, every time, God puts a prophetic blessing and then finally, he, he puts a prophetic word in Balaam who says to Balak, and let me tell you, while I'm at it, these people are going to overrun you and wipe you out. You people are not going to be anymore. And that was it for Balak. He smacks his hands together. He said, doggone it, I hired you to curse them. And he's just absolutely fed up. So Balaam's not stupid. He can't prophesy a curse over Israel because God's already spoken blessing over them. But he's a wise man. He says, okay. He said, I can't curse him. He said, but let me give you a little advice. He said, I'm going to give you a little formula. If you follow this formula, he said, I believe you can get God to curse them. They'll defeat themselves. And uh, Balak said, tell me. And so he says, I'll tell you what you do. He said, hide your soldiers. He said, because Israel's on war footing, and you can't fight against them. So put your soldiers away. Hide your weapons. Get all your temple prostitutes. Get the prettiest ones you've got. And get all them girls and send them out to, to, just, to just start, you know, picking flowers around the camp of Israel and just hanging out and looking good and and the man will start getting interested in them. And he said, don't send them out empty-handed. He said, these, these people have been eating matzah crackers for years, man. He said, they don't know what real, they don't know what any good food's like. So load those girls up with some buckets of chicken and some beers and send them out there. You know? Uh, lift up their hemlines a little bit, give them some Colonel Sanders, Send them out. He said, these guys haven't had any real food. He said, them boys are going to come out, and they're going to love those girls. 
but they're temple prostitutes because Baal Peor, the religion, the Baal worship of, of their gods, it was a fornicating religion. The ceremony, if you will, the sacrament, the sacrament of their god was having orgies in church, as unbelievable as that sounds. And then from there, child sacrifice. When they would build a house, they'd take one of their children, slay them, kill them, and bury them in the foundation of their house. I mean, these were, this was a rough religion. You know, we, we think, oh man, I don't want to go to church and give an offering. But these people, they gave off. <laughs> but that was, that was what these people were all about. And so he said, look, go, uh, go send your women out. He said, these guys are going to go crazy for your girls. He said, and then have your girls invite them to church. So they, you can just see the little Jewish boy. He's got chicken grease all around us. He's wiping his mouth off. He's throwing beers back. He's like, this is great. This is wonderful. And she says, how'd you like to come to church with me? Well, what do you guys do in church? Oh, you'll love it. We have a high time. It's great. Well, well, what do you do? Well, just come. You'll find out. Are we having a good time? Yeah, yeah, we're having a great time. Well, come on. You'll find, there's more of that. Well, after a while, hundreds, thousands of these Jewish boys, they're in the temples of Bel Peor. And they are not only fornicating with these girls. They're like, wow, we had no idea life could be like this. This is phenomenal. This is awesome. I love this stuff. But now they're, they're worshiping their gods. Said, I like this God. You know, the Bible says sin has pleasure for a season. It's, it could be exciting change. When you've been fighting battles and following Moses through the desert and everything, it could be an exciting change, right? So what happens is that's the strategy. He advises Balak. He says, Balak, that's what you do. Forget these curses and tell your men, put their weapons up. They're not going to need them because God's going to get his weapons out on these guys once you start converting them to Baal worship. And that's exactly what happened. So Satan is ever plotting against our souls to take it easy. That's the, that's the advice the devil has to take you out of the game. It's to just get you to settle down. Just chill out. Just take it easy. Relax. You know, the world's not so bad. En enjoy, enjoy life. Now, there's nothing, generally speaking, wrong with any of the, what I've just said until you really start following it through incrementally, step by step. First the chicken, then the beers, and the girls. Next thing you know... You're going to church five days a week in the, in the temple of whatever. So Balaam's advice to give sin's magnetic power and opportunity to work against these Jewish guys was all that he needed to do. And the reason is the world craves your lust. The world craves your desires. And that's why we need to guard our heart with all diligence. For out of it, our heart, our life, our heart is a sanctuary. 
Our body is a temple of the living God. Our life is a, is a temple of God. And, and these other religions, they have to build those temples and go do whatever it is that their flesh wants to do and, in there. But we, this is the temple we maintain. This is the life we maintain. And while we group together as a church, whether we're 50 or 50,000, doesn't matter how many we are numerically when we come together, God lives completely and fully individually in each and every one of us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so sin's magnetic power is simply that the world craves your desire. And the reason is because within your desire, within the lusts of your flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, all those things the Bible talks about, within your flesh, within those desires, lie, lies the capacity for idolatry. And the world wants to be worshipped. The world is always looking for more worshipers. The world, the spirit of the world, wants servants. The spirit of the world wants acolytes. The spirit of the world wants people to live and serve at its altars. Because Satan is the god of this world. Satan is the god of this world. And so, his greatest war against God's people, sometimes he fights us with swords and spears. Sometimes he fights us with laws and with persecutions. But his most effective strategy against us has always been to cool down our hearts, to just simply take the heat, to break the protective zeal so that we become compliant, so that we... Instead of taking the, our number one commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and replace it with the commandment, thou shalt not offend anybody. Thou shalt not do or say anything. You shall go along with whatever you need to go along with in order for people to like you. Because if they like you, then they'll like the God that's in you. Well, guess what? You've just become a Christian version of those temple prostitutes. You're thinking you're going to lead people to Jesus because you could get the world to like you. But Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. Unless the Father draws him. They're not coming to because of you. Really, it's unintentional, but I believe it's the unintended consequence of the way we present the gospel today that we are turning Christians into temple prostitutes. We are trying to get Christians to groom themselves and to, in such a way as to make themselves pa as palatable to the world as they possibly can without full-on jumping in and, and, and uh, serving the world. And we think that we're the bait. We're supposed to troll ourselves oh, you know, I met this person and they just liked me so much. I, I think they'd make a great question and, and if I could just fellowship with them and get them to like me, then they'll like Jesus. And then they'll, see, they'll get saved. That's the way that'll work. Now, I know that it sounds crude to just come out and say it like that, but that, that's implied in a lot of messages, a lot of preaching, a lot of modern Christian thinking. So the world craves your desire because... In it is the potential to turn you into an idolater. And it turned them into idolaters and, by extension, the enemies of God. So they became the enemies of God. 
One chapter, God is saying, they are mine, the lion is in the midst of them, and you can't curse them. And the very next chapter, God's cursing them. And God is wiping them out and ordering Moses to tell the judges to kill all the ringleaders who, who started this. Ephesians 5.1 can almost sound socially polite until you combine it with this story that I'm sharing with you this morning and you see what the spirit of Ephesians 5.11 is really about. I shared this verse last week and it says, Take no part in and have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds and enterprises of darkness, but instead let your lives be so in contrast as to expose, reprove, and convict them. Protective zeal. The only way you keep yourself from being penetrated with compromise and drug off into some form of idolatry is to maintain the zeal of Phenehas. Keep a spear handy. And you know what? Phenehas's act of zeal was a one-off. It never became a way to deal with compromise. It was never intended to be that. Zeal, we like choreographed zeal. We like our zeal choreographed. We like to have a professional orchestrate zeal and then we'll kind of follow it. But once you've done that, it's not zeal. Because the nature of zeal is that it is spontaneous. It has come from your heart. You're not following some kind of an order or some song of some kind. You are literally responding to the spirit of rebellion that is trying to destroy the things of God in your house, within the boundary of your life. So you can see that Phenehas' response was a one-off. It was never meant to be something that people made a pattern out of it or it became the thing to do. You never ever hear about them grabbing spears and slaying anybody that rebels against God because that was never the purpose. That's not what God wanted. Passiveness. Passiveness in the face of rebellion against God and corruption allows callous indifference to grow in our heart. That's why our protection is to stay proactively zealous. A Christian cannot survive, cannot defend himself, cannot defend her faith being passive. This is, a, this is a faith that requires a walk. You, this is not a, when, when the Christian is called to walk, it's a standing walk. It's, you know what I'm saying? I mean, when the Christian is called to stand, it's a walking stand. Praise the Lord. So we've got to be forward leading. Otherwise, calluses of indifference grow within us if we're passive. Israel's leaders got in trouble. This is why Moses ordered the judges put to death every leader under you who, who was supposed to have responsibility and didn't exercise it and let the people under him go off and commit adultery, become idolaters. Um, because the leaders failed to put a stop to the fornication, Zimri, Zimri was emboldened by their example. He might not have gone and gotten that Midianitis, Midianite honeypot and done, done what he did had he not been emboldened by the example that all of his leaders over him showed 
for however many days or months this thing was going on as all these thousands of guys were leaving the camp and hanging out among the Midia, among the Moabite uh, women and so forth and in the Moabite temples, had he not witnessed that over that period of time, he probably wouldn't have been emboldened right in the middle of a repentance service to, to drag this woman, right, excuse me, excuse me, I know, uh, don't let me interfere with the praise of worship or anything, right through the middle of church and into his tent to participate in some of their Baal worship together. So, immunity, immunity to reproof and judgment developed a smooth soul within the leaders. Their soul was slick, it was smooth. There was no rough texture in their soul for zeal to take hold of. We should live on a war footing. Our soul should not be worn flat and smooth and slick so that everything in the world just slides by it. Have you ever noticed you have hair in areas of your body that you wished? Why did God do that? But it's meant to like purify the stuff that you breathe in through your nose and everything. And as you get older, it's like, does that stuff have to, does it have to just keep growing like that? I can't, and you know, you do something about it, it just grows back. When you're a young man, you got hair on your head, tons of it and everything, but your body's just slick as can be. And the older you get, it all goes south. It just, all of a sudden, the hair's coming up on your shoulder. I remember one day I was in the bathroom, I looked on my shoulder, I said, oh, God, it's skippers. I had a puppet coming up on my shoulder. I thought, what the heck? But, but those hairs are there to create a rough surface so that the particles that you breathe in, they're a filter if you will. So if you had just slick, clean, nasal passages, you know, everything would just get past it. So there's, there's a functional purpose and a reason why you shouldn't have a slick soul. That soul should have some abrasiveness to it. Something where the zeal of God can take hold and get a footing. Do you understand what I'm saying? But if there's nothing in you that's capable of getting angry, if there's nothing in you that's capable of, of bowing your back and going, oh, wait a minute. If you're just smooth and slick and you just, you just slide around with everybody and everything, it'll be impossible for you to ever be zealous. You'll always sit and objectively observe all the rights and wrongs and have nothing but commentary and philosophical observations but you'll never have what it took to stop the plague, and that is zeal. To get up and just, boom, pop right into action. There was a guy named Willie George back in the um, early 80s. He was a great minister, guy from Texas. He had a ministry to kids, a really popular ministry to kids, and most of you may not have ever heard of Willie George. But um, he, he had a big national ministry in his own church it started as a ministry to children. And then his program as Outreach to Children grew to all kinds of churches. And I was sitting with him at a conference in the Midwest once. And we were in, and we were in this hotel. And I, and I was sitting, Willie George and I were sitting. I had shorts and, you know, T-shirt on. We're sitting poolside at the indoor pool. 
He was sitting, because he had to speak that afternoon at the conference, and he had his whole outfit, his cowboy hat and his cowboy boots on, and his pants, and he was sitting beside me, legs folded on the lounge, on beside him. And all of a sudden, just in front of us, there was a kid that began to thrash around in the water, um, kind of nervously, and it looked like he was having trouble. We're in the middle of talking, and the next thing I know, Willie is off the lounge, two, three strides, and he's in the pool, boots, hat, everything, and just going through the water like a shark, grabs that kid and pulls him up out of the water, gets him out of the water. I, was, I sat there and I was like, wow, that is just... That's zeal, that was spontaneous. He didn't think, I'm gonna get my boots off, they cost 500 bucks, you know, or a piece. Um, <laughs> but he just, boom, and he came out of the water, and then he sat down, the kid went to his parents, and he pulls his boots off and then pours the water out of them. I thought, now that's a man. Yes. You know what I'm saying? That's a man who knows how to act. He's instant. But most of us have been so lulled by our culture today that we are analysts. We sit back, we think, we analyze. By the time it's, by the time something could have been done to stop what happened, it's too late. By the time we get ready to do whatever we're going to, that's why we're, that's why we're in the boat that we are in in our culture today. So passiveness allows callous indifference to grow within us. Zimri's emboldened by the, the lack of action, quite frankly, on the part of the leaders, because they have this smooth soul. Nowhere in them the ability of zeal to take hold. Now, I want to close this morning with a warning and a promise. And the warning is probably the most frightening part of this message. I share it with you because I love you. I share it with you because the truth will set you free. But I want to tell you, punishment and tears can't break the power of sin. Let me say it again. Someone's in a pattern of sin. You can't punish them out of it. Someone's in a pattern of sin. You can't shame them out of it. Even if they become ashamed and they break down and cry and weep over their sin, that will not break the power of sin. Punishment and tears do not break the power of sin. Because there was all of Israel, plus Moses, weeping before the tabernacle in tears. We don't know how long, how many days they may have been in that condition. People are still dropping dead the whole time. The plague is still going. The tears are not stopping God. All the repenting is not stopping God. Are, it, it, do, you get, do you get what I'm saying? That They are crying out to God, and God is not hearing it. He's not listening to it. What's God waiting for? He's waiting for what Phinehas did. One man, and all it took was one man. He's waiting for someone to use zeal to take action. There's a time to pray. There's a time for tears, and there's a time to take action. There's a time to take action. And when the men in the culture have been polluting themselves, ruining their minds, ruining their lives, and all the ripple dominoes falling effect that it's having on Israel, 
Their act, if you will, is bringing a curse on Israel. Crying about it isn't going to make it stop. Because while they're crying about it, Zimri comes right through the middle of them. Excuse me, excuse me. How do you like this, huh? And he's on his way to the he's on his way to his tent with her. Are you listening? Do you hear what I'm saying? People come to church and parade their compromise and sin right through church. No fear, they're not afraid. Why should they be afraid? There's never any action taken. Pastors won't even get up and talk about fornication. They won't even get up and talk about it. They're scared to death to talk about the, the issues that are destroying millions of lives and threatening a whole generation of children today. The whole transgender uh, movement and all that I talked about last week. You can't even get it spoken about. Not a warning. No action taken. So why should Zimri in our congregation be the least bit worried about bringing his own fornication through? Because he believes, well, 24,000 people died, but I'm still alive, so apparently, you know, I dodged the bullet. I'm okay. But what happened was action needed to be taken. Now again, we're not talking about changing the way we do church. This is, we're internalizing this within our life. What is it in you that allows you to not deal with yourself? What is it in you that permits you, that excuses you, that tells you, that yeah, I know this is offense to God, I know, that, I know that God hates this, but you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. I, I don't know why, I just feel that I can. Somehow there's a special dispensation over my life. Apparently 24,000 people have died, but I'm all right. You know, I, I'm okay. So, do you see what I'm saying? Why do we not take action over our own lives, over our own relationship with God? Now, please, at this point, I need to make something clear. I don't want anybody leaving this church this morning and all of a sudden just ripping your internal life apart and just looking for anything that isn't singing he set me free, he set me free. Uh, you know, I wake up in the morning singing commercials, old hits, everything. I can't get them, I can't stop them. I wake up, the stupid things are rolling through my head. So I know the Lord loves me and everything, so I just kind of need to change the tune, you know. But sometimes it's half a day. And, I, and I've got, you know, that Pepsodent commercial. Now you know how old I am. Run through my head and I've got to dislodge it. Now, obviously, we're talking about things that are bigger than just waking up with commercials running through your head. So I don't want anyone to think that I'm talking about you going home and just ripping through your life. What I'm talking about is you taking account for your relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, the spirit of sonship. And he's there to, to lead you, to shepherd you, to let you know what your relationship with him, he's never going to leave you. He'll be there. If you decide that you're going to go um, and, uh, and run around with the, you know, the boys outside the camp and all that stuff, he'll just hunker down inside your spirit and just kind of hold, chill out because he's not going to participate, but he's not going to leave you. And when he can get your attention, he'll get your attention, right? That's kind of how it goes. He doesn't leave you. 
right? But um, so what I am saying is you need to apply this to your life. What is it in us that allows us to damage ourselves, to hurt ourselves, to participate in things that hinder the move of the Holy Spirit in our life? If we sow to the flesh, Paul writes in Galatians, we'll from the flesh reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we'll from the Spirit reap life everlasting. So how do we manage our relationship with God relative to that statement? That's really what I'm talking about. And the frightening reality is that punishment, the plague that was moving through the camp, punishment wouldn't stop them and their tears couldn't save them. So that's something to remember, is that if you're weeping tears over something, that's a start, but until you take action, you're not gonna get saved from that thing. This is the frightening reality when there's no protective zeal against the spread of sin in our lives. Zimri was parading that Midianite woman through the church during the repentance service. And that, that says a lot um, because he somehow felt he's kind of used to it. You understand what I'm saying? So now I want to share the cure. If tears and weeping do not kill and stop and break the power of sin, but being zealous, taking action, there is a Zimri, there's a spirit of, there's a spirit of Phenehas within us, within each of us, the Holy Spirit. And if we ask him, he'll tell us what to do. If we ask, he'll tell you what to do. He has that spontaneous reaction. So here's the cure. Here's the cure. Zealous with the zeal of God. Being zealous with the zeal of God is the zeal of God is fully sympathetic with God's interests, but not with people's feelings. That's the difference between human zeal and the zeal of the Lord. The zeal of the Lord doesn't put human feelings first. It puts God's interests first. What does God care about? That's the one and only focus. Human feelings have to be subordinate to that principle. What does God want? And then I can find out where God wants me to stand. So many Christians are zealous for the presence of God and for his blessings, but they do it without hating the sin that separates us from God. You can't be zealous for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the move of God while refusing or finding it within you incapable of hating the things that keep his spirit from manifesting. With an equal amount of contempt for what stops the move of the Holy Spirit, along with the love and desire and zeal for the Holy Spirit, we'll have the move of God. Because action succeeds where tears fail. And the elders and Moses, they all had tears, waiting and hoping for God's mercy, but Phinehas had action. That 100% holy, spontaneous, unsolicited response to evil, he acted not out of duty, but out of heart. Not choreographed, 
not choreographed zeal, spontaneous zeal. And put it to you in a practical way. What do we do when a group of us are together? We say, uh, let, let's pray or let's do something. Most of the time we hold back, and that's fine to wait, let the Holy Spirit lead. But even when we gather to pray, there's oftentimes not, true zeal is hard, it's rare. You don't see it very often. We lack initiative. We don't take initiative. We like a choreographed prayer. We like somebody else sort of doing the praying, somebody else we don't want to. How many times have you been in a situation where you said somebody needs to get down their face right now before God, but you won't do it, but you think somebody should do it? I, I think pastor should, should go down on his knees and he'll kind of lead. the. But the, a lot of times I do it and I'm the only one who, who does that. Nobody else follows. So what I'm saying is real zeal makes its calculations of what should I do based on what does God want and forget what people think. What does God want done? What does God want done? And I'll tell you, if we had some more true zeal returning, what would, what would do that? The fire. What is zeal? It's heat. It's the fire of God. Now, here is... Well, let me just say this to you. No preacher, not me, no preacher, no church, uh, no book, no Christian book, can do what your own zeal can do. Until you are zealous over your own life, you're not going to tap the motivation to protect yourself from compromise. So if you want more out of your life, more that glorifies God, you're going to have to get zealous with yourself. Don't wait for somebody else to do that for you because they can't. That's what's meant in Revelation 3.19 where God said, those whom I love, I reprove, I discipline them. I, I, I discipline and challenge and reprove them to help build them up, to make them bigger, to make them stronger. I reprove them. God went on to say, so be zealous and repent. Turn from your indifference. Be zealous. The, 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 the secret to true change, true repentance is be zealous. Here's my ending, my conclusion. God's extraordinary blessing to Phenehas. Remember we read it, God said, I give to Phenehas the covenant forever to his succeeding generations. They will forever be an eternal ministry ministering before my face. That was quite a covenant. That's quite a covenant. God said, you for the rest of your life, and he was for the rest of his life, and your descendants until Jesus came, who was his descendant. And Jesus fully, the zeal of your house, has eaten me up, it says about Jesus. Hallelujah. So basically, Phenehas inherited, because of his zeal, he inherited the ministry of reconciliation. He was given the right to stand before God and bring man and God together. He was given the ministry of reconciliation. Hallelujah. So when you awaken protective zeal within your own life, as Phenehas did, when you awaken that spirit of Phenehas within yourself, God will bless you. Immediately, you'll see it come forth. The power, 
to break the spirit of blindness over lost people so that they can come to Jesus. It is the secret of winning the lost to Christ. Is if you awaken the spirit of Phenahas within yourself, you have that protective zeal in, over your life, you will walk in the authority it takes to break that spirit of darkness that binds other people. Hallelujah. And that is the key. The other half of last week's message, that's the key to the harvest. Somebody say praise the Lord. So here's what we're going to do. If you want to turn off your device or close your Bible. Um, this is our response this morning. If you would first, let's just stand together.